0: Adam Schwab is a former corporate lawyer, company founder, angel investor and the co-founder of Luxury Escapes, a global travel company. He's also written for Crikey and Smart Companies since 2005 and is the author of Pigs at the Trough, Lessons from Australia's Decade of Corporate Greed. From being a self-described glorified filer at a top-tier law firm to great accomplishments as an entrepreneur, Adam credits his hard work grit and precision, honed as a law student as key ingredients in building luxury escapes into the jaggernaut that it is today. We started by asking how
1: Adam would describe himself if you met him at a party. What followed was a rapid fire rundown of his journey to now, harnessing his insatiable appetite for winning, keeping his head while riding the highs and inevitable lows of the entrepreneurial journey, all while at the helm of a billion dollar company. The conversation offers a pretty fascinating window into the entrepreneurial mindset, the line dance between risk and safety, the power of co-founder relationships, and in the face of great success, how Adam sees himself as a frugal everyday man and the kind of person that loves a good holiday deal, just like the rest of us. Here's our conversation with Adam. Adam Schwab, welcome to Human Cogs. It's great to have you here to chat with us today and understand a bit more about your world and your work. You have done so much stuff in your life. And if I met you at a party and asked you, what do you do, Adam? What would you say?
2: <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, then great. To, then thanks for having me on the, on the show. Uh, I think I'd probably say I own a travel business is my usual usual response to that. Uh, and some people ask what it is, some people just don't care. So it's a, it's a, you get a gambit of responses.
0: I mean, that sounds like you're a travel agent in a high street that I <laughs> pop into when I want to book my t- trip to, you know, Perth.
2: A little bit. Most people do ask sort of, what is it? And then I'll talk about the business and and they'll, they'll generally, people tend to like, travel is, the business we had before, the first business I had after I was a lawyer was essentially a corporate apartments business, service apartment business. And people's eyes would literally glaze over when they, when they, they could easy. not care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Could not care. Could not have cared less. But when you talk about travel and especially luxury travel and especially discounted luxury travel, uh, it's most people do like talking about that sort of stuff. So either people buy travel, not necessarily from us, but they almost, not everybody, but a lot most people buy travel. Everybody loves discounts and everyone loves having really nice hotels. So it is a triangulation of, of interest. So people tend to be interested in it. Um, so it's a, Certainly an easier thing to talk about than, than just kind of boring apartments that nobody gives a stuff about.
0: When you were at a dinner party way back when and you were a lawyer, <laughs> um, what did that conversation look like?
2: Oh, taking me back a few years. Uh, I'm not sure I go to many dinner parties, but um, assuming I did go to a dinner party, yeah, I don't think it was an overly exciting. I think law, law essentially is pretty boring uh, and it's hard to sugarcoat that. The glamour, glamorous law you see on the TV shows almost never happens. Uh, the, I was an M&A lawyer for a couple of years and essentially you're a glorified filer. You file stuff in nice folders and you um, do a bit of research and you do you you essentially read through prospective documents, make sure every word matches what the documents it, It's pretty mind-numbingly boring stuff. So to sorry to all, all the lawyers right. um, listening to this episode. <laughs> well, I'm sure they, they I'm telling myself that already, no. Like why did
1: you go into it then, like in the first place?
2: I think there's two parts that I'll I'll answer. I'll create a question on top of your question. So while I go into it, I think the natural, you get good mark, and I've asked lawyers the same question on my part. You you get good marks, you sort of naturally do law or medicine or maybe like engineering or something. So it's you always feel like you don't want to waste your 99 or 98 or whatever you get, and you got to do something like with that. I actually wanted to be a lawyer when I was younger, probably because my cousin was a lawyer. My uncle was a lawyer, so I had lawyers in the family. But... I think the second part to that is, should you do the law if you can? I think it's probably the more interesting question for people who, who can. And I think the answer is yes. Like whilst law itself is mind boring, the, the skills you learn are, are pretty important. Uh, so through university, I'm not sure if you guys did law, but through university you're competing against a, a pretty high calibre of person and it's marked on a curve. So you have to work pretty hard to get a, re- a good result. So it teaches you certainly hard work. And there's a degree of intelligence, but it's certainly hard work. It's probably the, the, the grit. Hard work is is an important angle. And then when you, when you become a lawyer, especially at a bigger firm, so you can work at a big firm or a small firm, essentially. Working at a small firm gives you a much better understanding and knowledge of the law because you're doing a lot more. You're thrown into your more stuff. I worked at a really big firm, the biggest firm, and you do very little important stuff because there's more senior people doing more important stuff. But what you do learn is precision and hard work. So that hard work becomes everything harder than uni. So you're working all nighters. You're working until 11 12 o'clock at night. So you understand what hard work really is. You understand what boring work is. And you understand it's got to be right. So if you're a lawyer, and you know, I did an article quite a of rotation through employment law, and basically all I did was make folders for barristers and people going to the tribunal. But you know you've got to get that perfect. You've got to get 100 documents, 100 cases. Every page is going to be right. Every page is going to be perfectly photocopied. Now you don't photocopy, you print it out. Back then you have to photocopy it. Uh, if you get a citation wrong the barrister goes nuts because he's in court, you can't get it wrong. So you, you do learn a level of precision that, most roles, doctors probably have it because otherwise patients die, but most occupations don't have it. And obviously we I've been in entrepreneurial sort of businesses for 15, 16 years, and it's very different. It's, it is much more move fast, break things, don't always get it right. But then as your business gets bigger, you've got to get a bit higher, You're not precise in a legal sense, but you've got to get stuff right. And often I'd say... Lots of people who just make mistakes and it's not their fault, but it's just you, you learn that level. You just don't make mistakes, not even though it's perfect, you don't make basic dumb mistakes having been through that legal journey. And the only thing you get from being a lawyer is you just don't get bullied. If I get a legal if I and we don't get many legal letters, we don't ever have over 15 years, maybe we've got three or four of concern. If you ever get one, you sort of know, tell them to piss off because you, you kind of know what the, the genuine, you know, if you've done something wrong. And if it's a commercial issue or a legal issue, mostly it's commercial, it's always about money. But you know if you get something wrong, how to how to fix it. And essentially you learn the key crux of law is rolls around, or as in tort, it rolls around damage. So if you do something, forgetting legal stuff, and I'm not talking about ACCC, but if you're talking about B be another person, did you cause damage to that person genuinely? And if you did, then you got a problem. If you didn't, you don't. I was looking. Did we damage that? Or had we been damaged? And that's the key. So often you've been wronged. We haven't been damaged in a legal sense, so you can't claim. So there is a couple of really good reasons. So it's the understanding of how the legal framework works, and the precision you get from being a lawyer is something that is really helpful. And being a consultant is great as well. There's other great professions that, that, are, that are helpful. But but I think if you do have a chance, you do like that kind of critical thinking. Doing five years of law and a couple of years practice max. Is probably about right. Otherwise, you become too risk averse and start earning too much, and it becomes hard.
0: So it's an interesting story because you're talking up the the benefits of law, and it's a really uh, you're talking outside of the law. The benefits, the transferable skills that you take into the world. But at 25, you left the law. How yeah. was that received from people <laughs> around you, from your family, and what was the story you told yourself when you left the law at 25?
2: Uh, so I, I had a, uh, my best mate from school, who's still my, my business partner to this day. Um, he's just come back to Melbourne. He lives in Dublin. He has got to Melbourne yesterday um, for, a, for a trip. He was really pushing. He was at ANZ. He was really pushing to do something. So he, he and he's, he hasn't been super operational in the business for a lot, for many years now, but he's still very involved and operational. But he's always been the spark to, he's more, let's just go do it. Uh, and I, I'm not risk averse any stretch, but he was, it helps when you have someone pushing you. That's sort of the co-founder thing. Talk about that later, but uh, so he was more aggressive in a "let's just go do it" sense because he and he really did see the risk matrix was right. And he was right, hundred percent right. He was right all along in terms of pushing. When he and he has sometimes he pushed too hard down the track, and we sort of don't know when to push back. But he was absolutely right to push when we pushed. Uh, and having not having not done that, we would never have done what we did. But this is two thousand and four, two thousand four, two thousand five. I took a leave of absence, so I did have that safety net. Could have gone back. I, I was never really planning on it, but. Definitely could have, and the, and the firm was kind enough to, to let me do that. This is in 04 when being an entrepreneur wasn't cool like it is now. Now it's cool. I think guys it's cool. Like it's 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 a very different. Back then, I spoke to Simon Griffiths, who from who gives a crap. I'm not sure if you have spoken to him. He's a sensational guy, and he said exactly the same thing. He said back then the entrepreneurs were scarce and bold. And you know, it's so a big entrepreneur wasn't cool. It was actually the opposite. It was and
1: they didn't give yeah. the, the whole thing a, a good name anyway, did they, Skyce and Bond, really? Um but, yeah, but, exactly. but you're right, the ecosystem as well, if we look globally, it's exploded, like venture capital's exploded, and entrepreneurs were these exactly. outliers and sort of audacious people in the world, like your Bill Gates or your Steve Jobs or whatever. Yeah. And now yeah. everyone's got a side hustle, you know, on the side. When you jumped out at 25. Was it? I'm just going to have a little crack. It's a side hustle, you know. You're talking about this safety net, or did you jump out and go go hard?
2: Yeah, it wasn't. Well, it was a side hustle for, we, in 2004. We start, the cup day 2004, we started. It was before that we started, uh, and we had a couple of. We, we basically did originally backpacker apartments. So we, because we, we were 23, 24. That's what we were. So we weren't backpackers, but we were that age. Uh, so we rented an apartment. We ne- and we both lived at home at the time. Rented an apartment. I have never rented an apartment before. Had to learn how to do that. We had to buy secondhand furniture, which I. Did, which, we want to save cash we did much cash we ran in a trailer my dad's trailer and couldn't drive it and almost crashed it all the time and I mean, one time we bought a, f- a couch and because we're so fucking idiots we didn't properly strap it in and the couch literally flew out the back of the trailer because it was like a and thank God it was on the Peter Highway and thank God there was just no cars around and I could have landed on something anyway, fortunately it didn't I just went we quickly pulled over the car quickly put the trailer back the couch in the trailer and went on our way uh, much slower um, so we really were complete idiots there's, there's no question but we learned a lot through that but we, so we had it with a side hustle for probably three, four months, like very much a side hustle. This is before side hustles were invented, but it was a side hustle. We realized there was product market fit. We didn't, that term didn't exist, but it was product market fit there because essentially we could fill the apartment. We knew if we filled an apartment, we'd make 10 grand a year, roughly, in sort of net margin probably, before court had head office costs, which were my business partner's dad's accounting firm, yeah, a tiny little office room, had anything for it. So, we're making sort of 10, so we knew if we got to sort of 10 apartments, we'd be level peaking with our, Three so and like 50, 60 grand a year. So it's a level picking, much easier, much less work, more tax effective. If we got twenty apartments, we'd increase our wage. We got to forty, we'd triple it. So that was sort of all we We're always competing against what we would have been getting at a at a law firm or a bank.
1: Were you legally allowed to
2: sublet those apartments? That is a good question. Um, well, that, that's where legal 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 background really helps. So you sort of. We sub it. So we didn't sublease it. In the early, the, early, the first, we were young kids, really. So we were going in and we were <laughs> sub to into backpackers as well. So we we were a bit vague. So the first one we said, and we had some issues there. We, the first one we said, um, we, probably, we might live there, we might not, we might have other people in. And it, this was in the, well, the Melbourne rental market. was pretty depressed. So they was kind of happy just to get rid of them, to be fair. And then the second one, we're a bit more vague. And then we're becoming a bit less vague. And then we started with some bigger rental companies. And they knew exactly what we were doing. Uh, but then the rental market, and this is an interesting point you raise, but the rental market tightened a couple of years later and they had a competing business and they basically illegally told owners that we were creating this illegal hostel, which was not the case at all. They knew exactly what we were doing. They, rented, they inspected the properties every six months. We knew, They knew the business name. So we stopped hiding it after the first couple. They then actually went and lied to sort of 40 owners for their own. It was completely illegal what they did. And then we took them to VCAT to get those notices thrown out, which we yes you did so they agreed with us said what you did is completely legal you can't just make stuff up and lie to an owner uh but they but what they could do is lie to an owner in a different way they just said all oh, these tenants are bad get rid of them owners don't if you're an owner living in malaysia you just have no idea you got to trust your property manager we got i managed to get to about 10 owners directly so i just found you can do these property title searches the ones who lived in australia i spoke to they all rented directly with us so they go yeah these guys are crooks we'll go with you these are these are billion dollar businesses should add these aren't this wasn't a tin can. This is a billion-dollar property developer. I won't mention their name, but but they're still one of the biggest in Melbourne. So we managed to get about 10 of them direct, and the other 30 we couldn't get to, we just couldn't, we lost the lease in four months, which was the four months you can just get rid of a tenant for any reason with no lease. We, but we just sub-leased new apartments, or we leased new apartments, and we turned into a corporate business. So we got rid of that whole, or most of that sort of regulatory risk with backpackers, and everyone loves corporate tenants, so owners loved it, and we still we only just we still have one apartment left in that business during the pandemic it was a good excuse to finally shut it down because it was slightly profitable. It was no it was more work to shut it down than keep it. So we just kept it uh for sort of 15 years and then the pandemic happened and it actually didn't make sense to keep it because there was obviously no one coming in and out because it was a corporate business and corporates couldn't come. So we, we finally shut it down and kept one because this we've got one long term tenant there and we don't want to boot them out. So we have one part one apartment left and a very part time I haven't I basically do no work on it. have I haven't for many years, but we have one sort of part-time employee who runs... It. Anyway, that was a great launching pad and a great apprenticeship for us. Uh, you still learn on the job, you try and error. It wasn't an online business, but it was a great apprenticeship and it got us out of that risk-averse professional world into the entrepreneurial world, which allowed us to build much bigger businesses subsequently. But that was the best apprenticeship we could have hoped for.
0: How do you go from that to a lux- luxury space? <laughs> There's a couple of pivots. So we, we start... Uh,
2: we originally, I was in the UK in 2009 and we saw a business called Top Table, which has since been bought by booking.com essentially, so open table, And it was effectively a, a restaurant booking site with discounts attached. So, really cool site, but nothing existed. In Australia, you had no online bookings and you had no online. It's like imagine the entertainment book online with book a restaurant. So, you book a restaurant, and you get 30% off or whatever. I thought, well, I use this a bit in the UK, but this is a, this is a great business. I thought, we didn't know anything about online marketplace, like online anything really. But I said to Jez, well, why do do this? How hard could it be? I had a mate who was a really good programmer, product and de- developer. He started working on it. Again, we thought we'd just give it a crack. It was minimal. We had we had like a million bucks we made through the property business, buying and selling apartments because uh, we bought a bunch of apartments. We hate debt, so we sold them again. Had The property market had gone up and we made a million bucks. So we had this million bucks. We wanted, we didn't want to buy a house for ourselves. We, to, we were 29 still, so we were 28, 29. We wanted, let's give it a crack, build something scalable. The problem with the apartments business is it wasn't really that scalable. You had to... And there's a couple of great businesses in Melbourne and Australia that have done a good job with it, but you, we had to, every apartment was setting up the furniture, it was, it was, it was a computer breaks, you have to fix it. Like, it was, it was hard work. These days, you have to do it. But we wanted something more scalable and online. It was just happening. So Web 2.0 was just starting. Uh, so we started this online restaurant booking thing, and then we saw... Jazz actually saw Groupon in the States, which is the fastest business for a billion dollars. And we said, well... Problem with the restaurant thing is you have to build a marketplace. So get five, six hundred restaurants in Melbourne, if we're starting with Melbourne. Until you had it's chicken and eggs, it's it's chicken and egg stuff that you have with marketplaces. Till we had that marketplace done, we couldn't really launch properly, and then you have to acquire customers. Expensive. So we thought, well, the Groupon model—the beauty is it's similar business, but it's one deal a day. So all we need to focus on is getting one deal, then one deal, and one deal. And getting deals is hard, especially before you have a website. That was the, that, that's the classic chicken and egg. Uh, so we pivoted to the Groupon thing. We called it Zupon. We later called it deals.com.au. Um, after Scoopon sued us, who were being scooped by Groupon. sued by Groupon. We then are now great friends with oh, Gabby S- and Hezzy from Scoopon. S- we were Groupon with the Z, so Zupon, which is a ridiculous name. Um, Gabby and Hezzy from Catch were Scoopon, which was, Zupon, was Z- <laughs> Groupon with an S.
1: Can I just like pause there? So outside Marketplace, absolutely, like bloody hard to execute a business model like that, especially at the time you're talking about 2009 or whatever. Did you have a defined customer segment you knew you could sell to at that time? We,
2: we didn't know anything. Like, we were literally clueless. Like, it's, um, I can't understand how clueless we were from both sides of the market, from the supply and demand side. Like, now we got, we didn't, we, now when people start a business and you see, you've been involved in heaps of businesses and you see entrepreneurs come to you and they've got, they've got, they've, they've seen a problem. Let's solve this problem. You might got an incubator. You might raise family and friends around. You sort of know you've got to find product market fit. You know what a unit, you know what the economics are. You know you've got a CPA and an LTV. We know any of that because none of it really existed back then. Like, Shamath was hacking away at Facebook. That's pretty much it. Like, there, was, there wasn't really a, a growth sector at that point. And, and if there were, we wouldn't have known about it and we wouldn't have been allowed it. So it, it was kind of... There was a few people doing it. Like the Poloniser guys in Sydney did Spreets and they had a few ideas. And Rolf and Dan, who did Brands Exclusive and, and now Rolf and Dan Paul's Smully And they were doing stuff around it because the German guys knew a bit more than the, the sort of local guys. Um, but we certainly had no idea. We just saw an opportunity... For a business we thought well entertainment books are good business take it online it's good because people are going online well, well let's give it a try and our, our, our case use case is would we use this we're very much the everyman customer like a, we're super frugal still to this day super frugal um i hate paying full price for anything uh so we're always still the customers so i know if i if i like something it's usually a pretty good proxy that other people will like it and i'm the same with my like if i like a song other people like songs. I'm like pop song. So I use myself as a great benchmark as to how this business works. I'm still sort of kind like of the average customer. Um, and we thought that we would use it. So who doesn't like discounts? I thought well, let's give it a crack. We weren't the only people to do this, by the way. There were 80 other imitators pretty quickly. Everybody saw this Groupon model, and we just jumped on board like everyone else. We, we were one of the first, but we didn't go that quickly. So we were sort of ambling about. We were still looking at the restaurant thing as well, and then we saw Scoopon and Spritz and Uber and all and no, those three definitely launched and living social. Sorry, those four launched. So we thought, shit, this is a land grab. We better get going. We went as hard as we could, launched into the August of 2010. And we literally started, we didn't have a clue how to get customers. Like now people know how to get customers and Facebook and Google. This is before Facebook even monetized. Uh, so we we literally stood on the street. We print out these things and I handed out flyers on the street. And, for, and it was freezing, it was middle of the winter, freezing cold. And people were standing on the street in the city, and I saw people who used to work with me at my old law firm walk by, they thought, this guy's hit rock bottom. <laughs> like literally handing out. Like, did you, I have, had did you that, have shoes please, on just, and
1: stuff at the
2: time? Yeah. Or oh, at least a sand I, I run with no shoes, but I had shoes on the time because people thought I was getting paid to hand out. Like, we had a fairly successful other business that was okay, but people just assume, oh, geez, this guy's really badly. But the amount of amazing people who don't take, like, only one in 10 person will even take a flyer. We were handing out a flyer for it. $1 coffee and cake or whatever it was. This is our very first couple of days. And people just look past you like you got leprosy. Uh, so we did that for a little while. And that wasn't that, we just had to find growth hacks, customer growth hacks. And Jez actually found the one that worked and he found, this is back when Facebook was viral. So you didn't have to pay, before they did a great break, bait and switch, um, which is great for us, because we, we're fun we'll fund the business. But back in the day, you didn't need money, you just needed a Facebook group. And there's this Facebook group called Secret Melbourne that was based on a group called Secret London. It started by a young guy, Enterprising young guy, I should forget his name. And he had about 50,000 followers or members or whatever it was. And, and you could post stuff and you get pretty good organic reach. You get five or 10,000 people seeing him. Now you get five if you didn't have the guys on the back end, you get.
1: Or well, the algorithm kills you.
2: Yeah, exactly. This is pre marketing, Facebook pre marketing before they monetize. So we thought, well, why don't we? This guy was couldn't monetize. He just had this random site with 50,000 people. We've done a great job at building the site, great engagement and jess says why don't we buy the buy the group so i did a quick bit of legal research you couldn't actually buy facebook groups but there's nothing stopping us buying the administrative rights to the group which is essentially the password so we got my uncle who was a sort of property lawyer to draft up this document of i don't think it's ever been done before and probably never again is to buy the administrative rights particularly by the password so we could change the password he would give us the password he'd take his money we paid 20 grand i think for that 25 maybe so we got this fifty thousand person list so we could then it was solved two problems. The first one we had is we, we'd rock up to a restaurant and say, why don't you advertise on our site? Give us a really good discount. And you'll get lots of customers. They said, oh, all right, what's the site? Oh, we don't have a site. He goes, how many customers? We don't have any customers. So they go, well, come back to us. when have got some customers, understandably. And you couldn't get customers so you had to deal. So it was that classic chicken and egg. So the, what this did was solve chicken and egg. We could go to a, a vendor and say, Hey guys, we actually had 50,000 members, which we did through this Facebook group. We went 100% honest, but we weren't completely lying either. And they said, all right. And they give us a deal. We then promote, we'd sock puppet like, I'd like 20 profiles. We'd sock puppet all these profiles. Oh, look at this deal. Someone else said, look at this deal. And we get enough enough interest that people would nat- organically start seeing. It. And because they were essentially good deals, we'd hack the Facebook algorithm to get on people's feeds and got our first like 10,000 members that way. So maybe 20% of the, of the Secret Melbourne Facebook group became a member of. Zupon or deals. And they then virally, told their mates, and we sort of were able to solve the chicken and the egg problem through Jez discovering this Facebook idea and sort of me executing on it, which is really a story about the first few years. Jez finding an idea, pushing it, and sort of me making it work. So it's that great yin and yang of of ideas and execution, which one person couldn't have done. And I, do, I have ideas, and Jez is not completely over-executing, but the combination of both. That's why so many businesses, the two founders, just works, because you can found also can not work, but it, if you get that great chemistry, it works really well. And then we had a couple other co-founders, effectively, early employees slash co-founders come on. So a mate of mine from Munich called Mark and a guy called Josh who he bought his business. Both super smart people who, who contributed really well in other ways. Josh was this great product guy uh, and super smart and also XPC. And Mark's just this incredible, ex-lawyer as well, but incredible sales negotiator and just ideas guy, came up with lots of great stuff. So the combination of the four of us, was really magical in those early days and three three other guys are still shareholders and, and board members advisors but are um, haven't been actively involved in a number of years but it's those first those formative three four years initially that we really got a head start in like what became luxury escape so to answer your question in a ridiculously long-winded way we we had this deals business but realized that the travel part was the best part so the deals part was okay but the economics of travel was two thousand baskets dollar basket size versus 50 oil basket size mm. and much better customer satisfaction because hotels really cared about the user experience, their hospitality business versus a restaurant who could be really good or could be terrible. And a massage place it could be really good it could be, could be a terrible place and we once had a happy ending joy and that didn't go too well. So you just don't know. Oh, um, someone we had, to know, maybe. <laughs> most weren't. Well, actually maybe weren't. But yeah, so it just had those quality control issues that you don't really get with, especially when you work with branded properties and and really solid independent, like a high independence. So the beauty is, so you fix both ends of that customer experience. So we realized that the economics of travel were far better. So started doing more and more travel. And then in 2013, realized we needed a specific site to work with the Ritz-Carlton's of this world, the the is the one and only. I don't want to go on deals.com, understandable. Some hotels did, a lot of hotels did, but a lot didn't. And we wanted to go more and more luxury. So uh we, we create we incubated luxury escapes as a, as a new brand but same model and the beauty is we could start with a clean slate we knew how to treat customers we you how to treat clients and none of the baggage of the existing business and it was allowed us to be to be a, having a really high mps from get from the get-go and we never had that there's been ups and downs in terms of like when the pandemic strikes it's hard to deal with customers because you just get the volume but but overall we learned a lot so our first apprenticeship was was the corporate department's business, back, right? was is how do you run a business? And then the second apprenticeship was how do you run the online business? Again, a whole new set of skills. So we, had, we don't know how to get customers, you don't know how to deal with clients, you don't know how to run customer service, you want know to do finance, you got to do content, all this stuff you just don't know. Um, but you just trial and error learned. And we learned quickly. Um, if anything, it was a skill where kind of fast learners. I was speaking to Chris Lucas for, for my pod yesterday, and he said, the so I said, Well, why? Well, how do you do restaurants and nobody else can? He goes, I'm just a fast learner. And we're probably the same. We just sort of, a gritty and learn fast. We're not particularly and and knowing
1: what uh, to not learn or not carry forward with you as well. It's that lean startup kind of thing, isn't it? Just iterating the whole time and kind of um, learn, yeah, being open to learning and and uh, and moving with the market. What that sounds like incredibly like a huge velocity and trajectory. How are you doing, like through that, like personally? How are you managing that pressure?
2: Oh, pretty good. I think I, the, the only time that we struggle, I didn't have kids at that point, so I think I think when you get kids, it's a different kind of pressure, it's a time pressure that that is far harder if anything than when you're when you no know kids but um the only time i was a really like i'm a pretty relaxed kind of character in terms of business usually not much frazzles me um but it's pretty rare it's probably a bit of legal background as well you should just take a step back and look at it the only time we really were concerned is 2011 so we bought a couple of businesses and our business our, our original business was pro- always profitable we we're bootstrapped so it had to be and it was a Pretty successful business. Had its ups and downs, but we've pretty, pretty well. We bought a couple of businesses and they had bigger liabilities than we thought. And then we just didn't get the timing right. Um, and we had a cash flow crunch, and there was a real chance the business wouldn't survive. And so, even, even though our core business was profitable, that's weird. So often startups are losing money, losing money, and just run out, can't raise. That, that, that happens. We were profitable and almost ran out of money. It was really weird because you think we only because we basically bought a business that had all these liabilities, had to pay, and we were integrating it, so had to pay for the integration, had to pay all these liabilities. We didn't think so. We didn't do the DDD as well. We did it as well as we should, and we we're just too aggressive. And and we knew if we got over a hump, we'd be okay. But there was a hump, and it was Christmas time when our sales got smashed. Fortunately, Mark, that, that great negotiator, came up with a great deal in December that sort of go for a temporary stay of execution. And then we then we put sharehold, shareholders, put loans in because we just needed to make sure we had liquidity. So we put like 500K in. Then we did some great deals in sort of February, March or whatever it was. And we knew as soon as we did those deals, we'd be okay, especially with, our, with the cash we put in. But there was definitely a month or so where I was sort of waking up thinking, shit, this is, we wasted, effectively not just the last three years, but the last eight years, because you think that we let it ride. <laughs> like when you're at a poker table, which I'm not a gambler, but you'll still let it ride. Like you... You keep betting, you keep winning, you keep, instead of taking money off the table, we kept upping the ante, so to speak. So we never took money, never took money out. So it's effectively not just the three years. We just lost the three years of the digital business going on, oh, you know we gave a crack. But we lost the three years of, we lost three years plus five years essentially. So it's eight, nine years of, of work. So we so looked in the valley of death in a weird state. Your valley of death's usually earlier on. We had a delayed valley of death and we've just got over it. And since then, there hasn't really been ever a concern on, on cash, even during the pandemic. Um, we always had, a, we knew we had sort of had it under control. There was a couple of weeks of, let's just see how these refunds fall. But there was really just probably a month in 2012. So getting going back to the 10 years now, we were genuinely concerned and we were frantically Josh and I were frantic, trying to work out every option, what we do. We would have sold the business for 5 million bucks probably back then, or even less. Um, so we would have taken almost anything. Uh, but as it happened, then you just have a bunch of luck along the way. Marked there's two great deals. And he came in as shareholder, um, and then things just went our way. We had this great run where we went from sort of call it a twenty million dollars business to a hundred fifty million dollars business, which is a big step change. And then we went from the one hundred and fifty to a three hundred million dollars business, and then probably. And then we were sort of stuck at that level for a little while. And even and then just for the pandemic, we had a, a growth. what obviously, pandemic was its own beast. And then as we come out now, we're sort of almost tracking to a billion dollar run rate. So we've sort of had these sort of step changes uh, and just a completely new evolution. Now it's an exciting period of growth for. First time it's of five years almost, which has changed our mindset and the pandemic has allowed that. But yeah, it's been this interesting evolution. So going from near-death to stability to growth to slowing growth to this just new paradigm now, where, which is so exciting. So it's been this it's a full gamut of, of, of a journey that's – most businesses, I'm sure, involved in plenty of businesses. You see this, I'm sure, over a 15-year business, almost inevitable.
0: If you could take us back to little Adam, because you are just hershling along. I'm feeling my heart in my chest and my throat. (coughs) thinking but what happens to Adam in the middle of the night and what happens when Adam doesn't know and what happens when Adam says we were clueless and I think fuck Adam's out of control so can you take us back to little Adam and your family of origin what's the story there particularly risk versus safety yeah, it's a good good
2: question. Um, by little Adam, I'm assuming you mean little in age, not little in stature. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yes, little little in. in. Um, so young Adam. So I, I was always a pretty good student. Uh, so I, I worked pretty hard. Um, for scholarship and all that stuff, and, and got pretty good marks. Obviously, with law and all that stuff. Um, so there's, you have expectations, uh, and the expectation always was. It always was to get very high marks, first first child or son. Like you, you sort of expect, expect it to, to achieve a lot. Um, my cousin is <laughs> very high-sheba, parents really. More mum than dad, but, but both to a degree. And it was always expected I'd probably do more and go to a big firm and all that stuff. So it was, it was kind of just a, not that there's never any doubt, but not getting into law would have been a failure and not doing well would have been a failure to an extent. Uh, a bit like Asian families sort of have that similar mentality, sort of similar mentality there um it works so hybrid but, but that's fine like I, I'm sort of I'm super competitive as most entrepreneurs are um so it's I thrive on that um even today, it's incredibly competitive we say competitive come out with a deal or a package wide and we've got that like it's we're an incredibly competitive business so is Amazon so is that like it's kind of not the way Amazon but it's it's kind of by nature so yeah I was, I was yeah super competitive pretty academic very sporty and and always just like to like to win um right or wrong I'm um, not always the best trade but um but I'd like to win family never never wanted to cheat wanted to win because I wanted to be sort of to, for that sense of achievement. And it's been like, sure. having money now, like we don't spend much money, like I'm not a big spender by any stretch, um, as, as most entrepreneurs they often aren't. Um, some are, some go the other way, but a lot aren't. For us, having money is kind of a If I had 10 million or a billion, it probably wouldn't change my life that much, but it would. It, it's purely a measure of of how much you succeed. And then obviously you can donate more at the end of the day. But leaving aside the, the influence to the donate to where you want to rather than other people who have money, it's it's purely you 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 want you want to have, create a, a degree of wealth purely to show your success is it's and, and to then have influence on where it goes. Not to necessarily buy private planes and buy big houses and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's how do you and that's sort of been an ongoing thread. How do you how do you win? How do you win fairly um and how do you create something and now it's about how do we create the best travel business in the world? Like, and, and where you, where at this, we've got an advantage there is most travel businesses aren't very good in terms of online. Like Airbnb, are pretty good, but well, they step back a bit. They were flying pre-pandemic, they listed, and that sort of focus changed a bit from product to growth and financial. But and the, the,
1: he's just come out actually and said he reckons it's going to be a new age of travel, but it's yeah. only just beginning.
2: Yeah, Chesky is the master of PR, um, and obviously they had the rental lease with some products. We even look at their products. The big products are wi-fi speed tests that will come on like if you go a hundred billion dollar business and the best you can come up with the wi-fi speed test that i think you need some better product guys so thank girls um so i think like if you look at product development we're working on the connected trip how do we use technology to improve people travel how do we build dynamic itinerary builders trip planners uh we've gone from a business that's been a flash sales business which we have one we have 40 amazing deals to the best places on earth at incredible discounts so these great impulse driven curation to a marketplace so we've got a curator marketplace now so if you do a search for any country in the world any destination you'll get 20 properties and a chunk of them will be incredible offers as well so you to the number number one hotel in london get free breakfast which is 60 bucks a night and a 100 credit versus expedia where you get none of that the same price so but it's an incredible marketplace which is going really well so annualized run rate of $130 bucks. when launched six months ago. So we think that will be the majority of our business in two or three years' time as we transition from a flash sales business to a curated marketplace. But the big part of that, the exciting part, is not just that everybody's got marketplaces, but is overlaying how do we build some really cool tech products on top of that that allows customers to access the products they want. How do we build a personalization layer? Then how do we build a product layer? To do it for travel, what Canva's done for design. Canva took design from expert graphic designers Mm-hmm. or people using Microsoft Paint like I used to when we started the business, to that middle layer. And that's why they're going to be a $200 billion business. $200 billion business. We want to do the same for travel. Take it out of the hands of expert travel agents who know how to use Amadeus, Sabre and all that stuff, and give the average person the ability to build an incredible holiday. And then how do we use the wisdom of crowds? How do we get what travel agents should be doing is creating itineraries because they've got this expert knowledge of Morocco or Russia or Spain. And just build, you, you, travel, you expert Morocco travel agent or morocco expert build an amazing trip on much escapes using our trip planning software the best cooking class in in marrakesh the best tented. the best five-star tented experience what, whatever the experience is you build this great itinerary for morocco or russia or, or wherever it is for the us and then customers can buy the product from us so how do we create that amazing experience getting the best of what travel agents shouldn't be typing in stuff into but they should be building great trips for people and we can give travel agents a small commission and they can get they can potentially earn 500 grand a year by building these amazing trips without having to do all the crap they have to do. So we want to be this great platform, platform of platforms, essentially. And we just think there's this massive gap in travel that people are... The travel businesses, Booking.com is a bit like a bank. They haven't iterated their product for 20 years. Like It's you know, essentially a really optimized list of hotels. Amazing business, $100 billion business, but a pretty dumb optimized list. We think we can do a lot better than that. So there's this great opportunity for a travel business that is product-focused, that's customer-led. Historically, we couldn't do that because we were an impulse-driven 40-deal flash business. Now, we've got, we'll got we have 20,000 hotels as well as fillers, tours, cruises et cetera, experiences. We can actually build the complete trip. So, the only place you should you – know, you guys as four, five, six-star travelers can go to tr- Rutter Escapes, know you have the best tools, and you'll have the best prices by 20%, 30%. So, we want to create not just great pricing, but great experience. That's so our – And we we couldn't have done this two or three years ago. The pandemic's allowed us to refocus the business on product being product-led, not deal-led. We still have great deals, uh, but it won't be the only focus. It'll be one of several bows.
0: So when we last spoke to you, you were in uh, what looked like a glorious hotel in Mauritius. We could see turquoise waters behind you. Today we're talking to you. You're in a hotel in Thailand. It leads me to two questions. One is, how much are you on the tools if being in a five-star hotel is being on the tools? And how do you actually relax? I'm on the
2: tools not as much as i used to be so uh, the reason i've been in these in these places uh, we moved to the uk for a few months after lockdown five before lockdown six my father-in-law wasn't well and we were worried that that my kids may not see him fortunately um thankfully he's he's in good health now which is great he's had treatment and going really well uh, But we wanted to just make sure like my, my wife hadn't seen her parents in over a year uh seen the grandparents in longer than that year and a half so there's just that risk of and, and we used to know when it was going to open again. So we took the three month plus departure and I, we have a team in the UK. So we, I could work with those guys as well, which is, which is good. So the aim was to get over there, father-in-law, but also to hand you the beta. I didn't think Melbourne would lock down for three months. I didn't dream of that. It happened three days later. So we went over there, but then the time zone got impactful. So I was doing investor presentations. So I needed to get out of that UK time zone and tragically, they ended up in the Maldives and, <laughs> and Thailand. Um we did at that time uh, that
1: you should have put a trigger warning up on the screen because we were in deep lockdown, it was not okay. Yeah,
2: no, I uh, I did also show you the outlook, which probably wasn't kind, but um <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I got Lambda to work on the right time zone to do presentations and I could speak to a bunch of I stayed at four hotels in Thailand. I'm gonna visit to sort of 20 hotels, I could inspect the hotel, so we have a, a hotel coming up on the site. I inspected it to make sure it was okay. Probably wasn't as good as what we wanted, so I can probably delay a few tell customers. We don't think it's ready to come back yet because it has been sharp. So saving customers the trauma of having rocked up there and staying in a hotel. So it's been really helpful actually being here, um, speaking to a bunch of hotels. Uh, I'm not really doing deals specifically. we got a team that go the partnership managers who are best in the business who do the deals. I'll, I'll speak to an owner or a, or a GM and explain about luxury escapes. And often it's relationships we already have. So just chatting about how we're going, great opportunities, what we're building, but it's more sort of that higher level engagement. But it's just great to actually be able to see the product. And also, what was really important is getting out of Australia and help out. Whereas every other show, I've sacking people, we increased our team by 20% over the pandemic. And then come July, August this year, after a year of slog when we thought we we're out of it, we had this next wave. And this was a glo- Australia ride wave. So it wasn't just Melbourne, it was Sydney, Melbourne, and everybody shut for a period. And our revenue dropped significantly after we were actually done pretty well March, April, May. The question at board level was do we need to start? Hiring people or furloughing people, or and, and being in the UK allowing me to say, "Hold on, guys, calm down. We, we will come back. We're probably three months behind. You can see in vaccinations. We model our vaccinations really closely. In the end, but you can see it was going to come back, and allowed us to not only not we didn't take any we didn't take anyone as a result of the pandemic through the pandemic. We a few people naturally sort of came and went, but we overall increased our team by twenty percent, and we we had confidence. And the, the, probably the time where it may have waned was this this August, I guess, when you thought God, oh, we've gone through it all now again. This is ever going to end." And being overseas, and my chairman was also overseas, and he was able to see as well out of Saudi Arabia and Dubai the recovery that happened there. I could see the UK recovery, and it wasn't like someone flicked a switch on 19th of July in the UK. There was a iteration, uh, but you could sort of see confidence coming back. And Covent Garden was pumping, and Soho was pumping. The city was quiet, but you could sort of see travel coming back. And you see it was really hard to get a booking in European summer anywhere for a family. Uh, so you see travel coming back. Uh, you said to hold the line, and the temp- and we actually did take management took. 20% pay cuts in August, September, um, quietly. We didn't tell any staff. The management just took, we just took 20%. Everybody just used, basically used LEAF, uh, which was another great gesture by the management team. But we didn't cut any junior staff, didn't cut hours, maybe slightly reduced bonuses, but still paid some bonuses to a degree. But it just allowed us to have the confidence that that we will get through it. And then September was a pretty good month. October was a record month. It was a record month. So we could sort of see that, it just allowed us to be a bit more, um, less paranoid, less cautious about what may happen, and really push through. So in the end, whilst it was, wasn't great reasons to get out, we were obviously lucky with the lockdown to avoid that. But it was significantly beneficial to me in sort of allocating resource. Do we do we need to shut up shop? Do we need to get really worried? on I know this is actually a timing thing. It's going to go for two, or three months. Can we really shit two or three months, which it was. Uh, but we could see that we could see the green shoots in September significantly, and then obviously the tree exploded in. Um, the beanstalk exploded in October.
0: And part two of the question, do you ever relax? <laughs> How do you do downtime? Uh, I'm not great at
2: relaxing. <laughs> um, uh, we usually Me and my wife usually watch like an hour of TV at night, so it could be like usually a Netflix show or whatever. So, that, But then I'm always on my phone <laughs> during that, as I'm sure you guys are. Um, but relaxing for me is partly, i find working, kind of relaxing as well. I'm not one to sort of sit around and not do anything. I tend to get up at 5am, 5 5.30 and just be on, and then I'll go to bed at sort of 10, 10, 15 and be off. So it's sort of a – it's pretty frenetic. But, like, I'll play table tennis at work a lot and other stuff like that. That's. Can you of run marathons? I haven't for a little while. I was hoping to do the half marathon this year, but I'm running – I've been in pretty hot climates. I'm only running, like, 5K because too hard. But uh, I don't know how anybody runs a marathon in Singapore
1: or Dubai. Oh, look, I, 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 think I think the whole marathon idea is just rubbish anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can I just on some of the stuff you said, you know, yeah. so growing up, it sounds like there was a fair bit of extrinsic um, sort of motivation going on where mum, mum, you know, you're expected to go into law and all those things, and yet you're saying you really like to win, um, so there's an intrinsic thing. Where would you yeah. – I know it can be a combination of those things as well. Where would you put yourself where you think about this driving force, this incredible, insatiable quest to keep doing things? Where, where's it coming from?
2: Oh, good question. I don't know. Um, I mean, just naturally – Partly competitive and partly just like some people just like to please. And I think to an extent I like the please, be it a customer, be it whatever. Like, I still love getting a five-star review. Every every review that comes through, be it one-star or five-star, they are always got a five. I get them. If I get a one-star, it's like somebody stabbing you in the heart. Like if you think that it's a, you're running a billion-dollar business, you don't, you don't care about a one-star review, well, you do. Generally, if I get more than one, one and you can sort of tell, if a one-star review just happens because we can't control, so be it. Like, we've, got, we've got massive queues at the moment in our call center. It's not our call center's fault. Our team, our management, our team are amazing. We just... We can I can't hire hundred people in a week and train them. It's just impossible. So we, the volume accelerated at such a degree. We just actually there's nothing. We're hiring as quickly as we can. We're right in probably two weeks. But for, we've got to. Have, we've had a pretty bad month in terms of compared to what we usually are. And we'll have a pretty bad two weeks. And then we'll get under control. But so that's stuff I'm not so content about. But where we've dropped the ball, where someone's just made a, a mistake through laziness or omission, that's that, they're the ones that are the worst. Where we just haven't treated a customer right. That still grates at me. So no, we should like. There's no no excuse for that.
1: And the best businesses are Um, absolutely customer obsessed and it sounds like you are. Um, I wanted to pick up on something else that you said about, you know, you you like to win. How will you know when you've won enough?
2: I don't think you ever have won enough. I think there's always, there's always, um, I think it's all Elon Musk, that silver medal he put on Jeff Bezos uh, on his Twitter feed. I don't think think you've ever won. Um, But you, you can, eventually you make a contribution that's meaningful enough. Uh, and clearly I haven't got there yet because we're still in the accumulation phase, not the distribution phase of, of our life. But I think the, the gauge of success really is who can give the most away. Uh, and if you give Andrew Carnegie style, give away $5 billion, then then you've you've effectively won at life. So can you can you make the most meaningful impact? And it's not always money terms. It could be non financial terms as well. But for me, it probably will be financial terms, hopefully at some point. And it's not going to be in the billions and millions, I suspect, but hopefully it's significant.
1: Give it to what is the problem that you'd like to solve for humanity? It's a good point. I think that the, the problems that I'm probably less about the big math.
2: Not that I don't support climate change action or that kind of stuff, but I think I can make. I prefer seeing the micro, not the macro. I think I look at the great charities, and I forget the person whose name was, but the person who I think she won a Nobel Prize, or he won a Nobel Prize. The the micro finance in countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh, giving giving women hundred dollars in in, in unsecured un- loans to create a business. so how do you do that? How do you help refugees in Australia or migrants in Australia who don't have the advantages that I had to create a life? How do, how do you help homeless people who who uh, generally there through no fault of their own, through through mental illness or through just bad luck? Often, often the biggest cause of homelessness, I think, is is illness. You can't It certainly is in the States, I'm not sure much in, in Australia, but how do you help people who haven't had the same chances? That's probably is the area I'd love to focus on. I'm Jeff Harris. There's done a, a huge amount of work around that, um, but it's also, it's how do you how do you take that business approach to solving these problems? So, and, not, and Simon Griffith's has done a lot of this stuff. Um, but how do you, how do we create rather than just give money? And I'm on the board of a couple of charities, but how, instead of just giving money to whatever charity it is, World Vision Save the Children, whatever it is, and you'd probably still do some of that because they're, they're incredible organizations. But how do we create something, the charity of a business charity, a business that is not for profit, that the dividend is how, how do you solve problems, It's not having give cash out? And I'd love to take the sort of experience I've got. 40 years or by the end of the 50 years and and create and create something in that sense um not outsource the work to someone else uh so how do you do the work yourself and create something that i think can have a better dividend as in help more people uh, that's what i'd love to do in probably 10 or 15 years ideally i think i'll go at least 10 years potentially or as long as i'm wanted in this business jeff Bezos retired now at 57 to, to chair um but sort of 50 to 55 feels like a good time to hand over the day-to-day while maintaining sort of some depending on what what's ownership is like, but I think at that point, really, how do you make a difference? How do you use that nest egg you've built, however big it is, whether it's ten million or a billion, or whatever, whatever that range is? How do you then use that to to make a difference more substantially?
0: It's an interesting concept to think. When I get to a certain point, that's when I'll give. You use the phrase "I'm in the accumulation, not the distribution um, process or phase." At the moment, is it possible that we can do both side by side? That we don't have to wait to get to a certain point of arrival before we shift gear?
2: Absolutely. I think the question is how much to make a difference. Like if you've got 100 grand, it probably makes sense to donate it somewhere. You can't do much with 100 grand. But if you've got 100 million, you can do something pretty significant. You've got startup capital essentially that's much more useful. You can just do more with it. Uh, obviously, you have too much as well. I um, think this is the, the Warren Buffett aspect. Was, he just said he worked? he's not. He's almost 90 now. He's still working. He's kind of half-handed over the reins now. But he certainly was very active till 85, 86, 87, and his principal was, I'm not going to donate much yet. He's, he's giving pledges, et cetera, et cetera, but he'll donate. He'll make as much as he can, a couple hundred billion, and he'll donate no, 99% of it when he dies. There's the Andrew, Andrew Carnegie who... Actually, Andrew, Andrew Carnegie is pretty hands-off. He should have checked out at 35 and started you know, more money. He started at that age doing the libraries and all that kind of stuff. So there's probably... There's a, um, I think there's probably a midpoint where you I'm not nowhere near that level of wealth, so clearly I'm not there yet. Um, but I think there is a point where... I think I'm still valuable to luxury escapes now in terms of product vision and all that kind of stuff. And then we've basically spent the last two years in a large extent rebuilding a lot of our management team and both ELT and SLT level. And we've now got a really good management team that's it's almost perfect in terms of obviously changes iterates over the years, but for where we're at now, it's a very good management team. Uh, so we can give more and more responsibility to, to the team. And then I think it's a slow burnout. I don't think I don't think just, I don't think it's I don't think it works just take someone out of the business, hold balls in one day, and we would actually try that. It didn't work. I think it's got to be a gradual shift over call, three to five to 10 years um, when you're confident in that kind of ELT, SLT successor, and then remain as some sort of whatever, chairman, whatever. I think Bezos is the next chair or whatever he is, but maintain a certain level and then hand over to your Andy Jassy. So, how do you do that? And then focus on other stuff. I'm not going to ever not do anything. I mm. want to do, so- whether it's writing or whatever, I'm always to be doing some stuff. But preferably, i love to my next proper business to be a philanthropic business, essentially. Uh, so we're, we're we're not paying dividends, we're paying dividends in the we're paying dividends in the form of social good, not mm-hmm.
0: cash. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before we start to wrap up here, what are your top three travel tips we're coming out of lockdown in Melbourne? We're dreaming. I mean, I've been getting the luxury escapes emails <sighs> throughout the last two years and sort of just drooling at my desk. And I'm sure <laughs> It it taps into something quite emotive to our hopes, to our dreams, how we think our life could be, what we could be doing. Uh, And now things are starting to open up and we can. So where should we be going? Uh, I think people
2: haven't realised how easy it is now to travel. Like you think, because people, we've had 18 months of being locked in. Like when you're going you know, in Shawshank Redemption when like, they leave him out of prison, and he can't open his eye. because I mean, like, the sunlight's too much. That's how Australians are. Like yes. if I go, wow, you could go tomorrow. You could, or you could book it to get to Thailand. Leave tonight and be in Bangkok tomorrow with no quarantine. Four hours in a hotel till you get a test back. Yes. And I can sell you a great package. So you can literally do it tomorrow, t- tonight. Go through Singapore. Um, Singapore's got a BTL or it's bath, But you can go to the US today, no quarantine and no. This is Melbourne and Sydney. Obviously, poor old people in Perth. Unfortunately, that's that's gonna be a little while away. But but for Melbourne, Sydney, and then soon Tassie, South Australia, and and especially Queensland, but certainly Melbourne and, and and Sydney or Victoria, can literally tonight go to Thailand, go to Maldives, go to almost anywhere. Now's the time to buy. Like the deals we're we're doing now, we've never done these kind of deals before. They're, they're the best we've ever done. Thailand's basically a grand reopening of the country. So the hotels are five or ten percent full. They want people on site. So you can go to super luxurious properties for the price of a three-star property and not just through luxury escapes or really anywhere, but obviously we're the best. But like you can go through anywhere, you go to booking.com, that's where you like to buy, uh, and get a great amazing deals out there. Uh, so there's now the, the airlines got plenty of the, the, the Singapore SQ Singapore Airlines got heaps of redemption flights. If you got frequent flyer points, is a bit harder with free, especially business, but but has got plenty of economy frequent flyer flights. If you've got lots of people have lots of points through the pandemic, luxury escapes takes points as well, so you can use your points to buy luxury escapes packages at the best conversion outside Qantas anywhere on Earth, so you can get a great conversion. But yeah, whether you buy through us, whether you buy through flight center or Expedia or whatever, now's the time to, to buy because you're not going to get these kind of packages again. And you can literally travel tomorrow and the hotel just can't. And you also, not just a great trip for you, is you get to see, I, I see these people in Thailand, people in Maldives, just can't wait to see people again. You, and you see the happiness of having visitors again. These are people whose livelihoods have been destroyed because that whole business is made. And it's... And you see some the hotels that aren't open and you go, and there's a lot of hotels, especially the non-branded hotels, a lot of them aren't open yet. So you still want to stick to a branded hotel or a well-known independent. I'm at a place called Katatani now, which is a very well-known independent hotel. They are a chain of sort of five independent hotels. But you go to the places that aren't open yet. And there's just we used to have the massage place and the restaurant next to the, at the front of the hotel on the beach, they're just gone. It's just like mm. just like it's like a hurricane's come through and there's just no one there. It was really sad. And Fiji, Fiji's opened up. We've had unbelievable, like Bren Hill, who's running tourism in Fiji, Australian guy, just incredible operator. He's almost filled up Fiji for the next six months. But Fiji's going off the, off the leash. Um, mm. You can get a four hours from, three hours from Sydney, four hours from Melbourne. You can be in, you know, in, in uh, Sheraton, uh, Shangri-La Fiji in, in four hours with an incredible deal. Yeah. It costs you two grand. It's cheaper than going to Australia. Way, way cheaper and it's four hours away. So,
1: so uh, we, need, we need to wrap this up, uh, Adam. <laughs> We've got some stuff to book. I'm, I'm levitating rolling <laughs> ruling at the same time, having been in Melbourne for a very, very long time. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, it's guys. An amazing entrepreneurial um, journey with all its highs and lows. Uh, we love to end all of these conversations by asking our guests this final question, knowing that life can be surprising and, and have all those ups and downs. Um, who do you think is doing human really well? Oh...
2: You got me off notice there, apart from you guys, obviously. Um, I love Carolyn Creswell, who I've interviewed as well. Uh, I think just had, she's got an amazing business, phenomenal product, phenomenal brand, and huge refugee advocate. She's a lovely person, will always help you. Um, she's a great example. I'm not sure if you had her on the show. If not, I think she'd be great for the show. Um, just yeah, just just lovely uh, and, and really inspiration to me. Just in terms of brand building, and she's she's that's 100 percent her female entrepreneur started from 18 years old, two thousand dollar business and taken it to a multi hundred million dollar business. Owns her own building, has this incredible work environment. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. So I think she's doing a pretty good job of it, and, and a great uh, and follows similar courses. So well, I great refugee advocate, great um, mm. great donor, lots of charities, and does a great job.
0: Mm. That's a good shout out. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for sharing your insights and helping us continue to dream about where we will go next. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All Thanks, right. Maddie. Thanks, Sarah. That's great.
1: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit.
0: And, you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.